Initializing now. You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, November 15th, 2005, show number 5. Today's topics are cognitive dissonance and resume writing tips. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org. Here's your host, Tiffany Raplin. Welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. I'm Tiffany Raplin, and I'm your part-time host today. Jim Vance is still gone, so Rob and I are taking turns interviewing each other today. And for the first segment, I have the pleasure of interviewing Rob about cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. So, Rob, what is it? Oh, it's a fun term. It's one of those terms that's long enough that people's brains shut down before you even get through the whole word. So basically what it is, is it's something that goes on in our head when we receive information that conflicts with something that we already know or that we've convinced ourselves of and which we are emotionally attached to. That part's very important. Our subconscious acts like a kind of grand jury deciding which conflicts need to be called to the attention of our consciousness. The conflict between the new and the comfortable results in a subconscious flinching, where we try to find a reason for disregarding it before passing it on. If your subconscious decides that it can't just disregard it, then it passes it up to the conscious mind, and that's where things really get ugly. What happens at this level falls into a continuum with denial at one end and acceptance on the other end and negotiations somewhere in between. Additionally, the denial end is often coupled with an emotional reaction whose magnitude is related to our level of attachment to what we already know and the level of evidence we have to support our beliefs. Okay, sounds good so far. Can you give me some real-world examples of this? Let's take a fairly common example of someone who's been taught creationism from birth. This is something that we run into a lot these days. Creationism is one of the foundations of the Christian religion, and for a lot of people, having to give up creationism would be a serious blow to something that's the very foundation of their lives. This situation is the perfect setup for cognitive dissonance because it's an idea that the person is very attached to, but for which there's no tangible evidence. The first few encounters with evolution will generally glance off that person's subconscious as too preposterous to bother the conscious mind with. When they've learned more, they'll usually still disregard it with the conscious mind as inconclusive. As the person has more encounters with evolution, then they'll eventually reach a crisis point where they'll have to decide to either critically examine the new information or choose to consciously disregard it. Basically, if their attachment to their religion is adequate, then they'll decide that adhering to its belief system is more important than whatever evolution can provide, and start a more conscious disregard of the information. Tactics at this level of disregard include aggressive ignorance, anger, and actual hatred for anything that continues to present information about evolution to it. This is where killing the messenger came into existence, and it's the main cause for people attempting to legislate science. Okay, so I understand the religious argument, but is this mostly a religious thing? Oh, heavens no. It's a continual part of our lives and exists anywhere that something is considered the basis of our identity. Racism is an obvious example. If someone told you that the sky was orange, you could readily disregard it as nonsensical. If someone told you that your skin was black and your skin is not in fact black, your reaction would vary based on how important it was to you to be differentiated from someone whose skin was black. The new idea could also attack your job performance, your integrity, politics, heritage, clothing style, typing speed, or choice of hobbies, as long as it's something that you base your identity on. One of the truly interesting things about cognitive dissonance is that we're more likely to react poorly over things for which there's little means of differentiation. 
Emacs versus Vi is an excellent example. There's no meaningful difference between the two because each has foibles that are more suited to a different mentality and development style. Any statement that one or the other is better has to be followed up with the question of, well, better for what? And yet this very sparse differentiation has touched off some of the most epic confrontations ever to blaze across the face of the Usenet. There's no wonder that this kind of thing is referred to as a religious argument. Also, cognitive dissonance is often tied to superiority behaviors. When we're trying to demonstrate ourselves superior to others, we're often unwilling to accept a loss of even a tiny philosophical point that we feel is in our favor. So wait, superiority behaviors. You're basically saying that I'm using cognitive dissonance, subconsciously, possibly consciously as well, to maintain an upper hand over you, or over someone. Well, not exactly. Superiority behavior is actually driven by our need to feel superior to other people, not so much our need to be superior. So how cognitive dissonance comes into play is it alters our perception of ourselves and our surroundings so that in our own mind we do in fact seem superior to whoever we're comparing ourselves against regardless of the actual state of things. Okay, so in other words, it's a tool that I'm using to maintain this map of the world that I have where I'm superior to others. Yes, very much. Okay. It still sounds, though, like it mostly affects philosophical concepts. So how does this impact my everyday life? A lot of the things that form our identity are, in fact, very practical. Our job performance, our relationship skills, our athletic capability, our physical appearance. Answer honestly to a female's question about wardrobe, and you're likely to come face-to-face with an adverse reaction to cognitive dissonance. Ah, the does my butt look big in these pants question. Why, yes, it does. Whack. Also, anytime you lob an expletive at someone, you're attempting to solicit an adverse reaction from their cognitive dissonance mechanism. We think we're just trying to piss them off, but that's actually what happens in that other person's mind. Cognitive dissonance is the primary thing that prevents us from taking criticism in an effective manner. The world is filled with clues about how we can improve ourselves, but improvement suggests a need for improvement which says something unflattering about our core identity, which rarely makes it past our cognitive dissonance shields. It's a healthier reaction to take the information that does come to our notice and examine it critically. If someone calls you a bastard, you can pretty quickly conclude that you were or were not born out of wedlock and accept or dismiss the statement. Of course, if someone calls you a selfish bastard, it will, in fact, require deeper examination. Okay, to sort of summarize here, then, it's not only a tool that I'm using to maintain a sense of superiority, and this is really just my view of the world, the way I'm coloring it, but it's also preventing me from being able to take criticism and from being able to possibly learn. Right. People who don't recognize their own cognitive dissonance cut off a majority of their avenues of growth. These are the type of people that wind up arguing the same argument on Usenet boards over and over and over again because the information that might correct whatever they're misthinking never gets through to them. And for the most part, they're not arguing on the Usenet boards or the bulletin boards or the blogs or whatever because they actually want to find the right information. They're just trying to prove that they're correct. So it's a defense mechanism that's preventing them from having to perceive and then adopt information that conflicts with what they already think they know. That's right. And back to superiority behavior, this is largely because having to grow would in fact be admitting that they are wrong. And nobody likes to do that. What about 
recognizing this in others then. Self-analysis can be difficult for a lot of us. But when I recognize that I'm in a situation, for example, on the Usenet with somebody who is engaging in this behavior, what should my approach be? I mean, can I convince them? I do occasionally run into that type of people. I mean, on the Skepticality Forum, you regularly run into trolls who are just there to flap their gums and get on your nerves. And generally what I do is I call them on it. I call a spade a spade and say, look, you you don't actually want to learn anything here. You're just trying to prove yourself right. And you're not going to do it, so you may as well go somewhere else. Or if I happen to be in the minority of a group of who's doing that, then I leave. Because there's no point in staying hanging around because absolutely nothing I can say can penetrate their bulletproof, missile-proof cognitive dissonance. It's Paul Graham. It's argue with an idiot, you become the idiot. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So recognizing it in others, then it sounds like you're kind of trying to figure out how closely they're holding this belief, whether or not you're in the minority. If, if you can get through to them, fine, probably not going to happen. And if you can't, you're probably best to walk away. Well, you have to identify the type of questions they're asking. If they're actually trying to get at the root of disagreement between between you and them, then they may actually want to learn something. If they're just spouting the party line, then forget it. There's absolutely nothing you can do. Because chances are they hadn't thought about their beliefs in the first place, so you're not going to get them to think about it in the second place. They're playing the sophist. Yeah. So how do I recognize then when I'm suffering from cognitive dissonance? I mean, obviously, I don't want to be the guy out there who's saying, you know, the sky is pink and, and everybody else laughing at me. So how do, I, how do I recognize it? What are some tips? Well, that one's a bit more difficult. In one of the original experiments where they proved the existence of cognitive dissonance, they paid some people poorly to lie about how boring a job was. And believe me, this job was very boring. And the people that they paid poorly to lie about it later actually convinced themselves that the job was not all that boring. Double think. So if you take this a step further, one of the things that you identify is that being a liar is a hit to most people's integrity. And it's even worse when you're lying to yourself. Very few people are willing to admit that they're lying to themselves. And that is essentially what cognitive dissonance is. It's your subconscious lying to you. So it's very, very difficult to catch yourself at this. That must be other people. Hey, I don't do that. I don't do that. (laughs) And when I was younger, I thought that I didn't do that too. I had to catch myself at it a lot before I could figure it out. How did you do that? What I did was I monitored my own opinions. I learned which pieces of information that I was passing on were truth and which ones were fact. The ones that are fact are things that I could trace back, and the ones that are truth are things that I couldn't trace back to anything except other people telling me information. Very few people get upset when other people don't accept fact, unless they're doing it very blatantly or in order to annoy you. People get upset a lot when they start arguing about truths, and this is a key sign of cognitive dissonance. Whenever you're in an argument with someone and you find yourself getting annoyed, stop yourself and determine whether you're arguing about facts or truths. And if you're arguing about truths, then there's a good chance that you're suffering from cognitive dissonance. I'm going to have to side with Michael Neal of Genius Catalyst and state that the surest avenue toward self-improvement is extreme self-honesty. Be ready and willing to accept negative things about ourselves because they lead to a better self. Improve your ability to critically analyze your information sources. 
If someone calls you selfish, they may just be peeved at your lack of generosity. If everyone calls you selfish, you should look into it. This is especially true for things that we hold on to tenaciously, but for which there's little evidence one way or the other. Examine your information, examine your motives, and be ready to admit that you might be wrong, or that there really is no firm answer. Excellent. Okay, well, Rob, thanks for talking with us about cognitive dissonance. Thank you. I love you. What did I just say? For a concept that's so incredibly important to so many people, it's amazing that the word that describes it is so poorly defined. Possibly because so many people are afraid to admit what it is not. Love is a lot of things, but it's not a promise. It's not magic that will make everything okay. Surprisingly, it's not even always a statement of goodwill. If not these, then what is love? Ask yourself what people talk about when they use this word. They love their spouse. They love their friends. They love their family. They love ice cream. They love a fast drive through the countryside with the top down. What's the common element? A desire to have that person, thing, or activity be a part of their life. More than that, it's a desire strong enough that you're willing to take action to bring you and the subject closer. This is the essence of love. We differ greatly, though, in how we deal with this desire. Most of us try to make the object of our desire happier when they're around us, while others try to make that person more miserable when they're not around us. Far too often, people switch tactics after they start taking the relationship for granted. When we don't know what to do about this desire, we suffer from what's called love sickness. Love is measured by the lengths to which we will go to keep that person near us. Will we give them our time? Will we give up our hobbies, our job, our city, our religion? It should be remembered that love is also measured by what the other person doesn't require us to give up. There's one more thing which is mistakenly called love, and that's the desire for the other person to be happy. While for most of us the two feelings go hand in hand, it's a dangerous mistake to assume that that is what someone means when they say, I love you. Welcome back to the second segment. Tiffany and I have changed chairs, and I'm going to quiz her on a topic that, considering the instability of the IT industry, is on everyone's minds way too often, and that's resume writing. So, Tiffany, you want to tell them why they should listen to your advice specifically? Well, it's not as simple as I have a killer resume and I get the jobs I want. That's true. I have a killer resume, but... I also review and update, edit, rewrite resumes for a lot of people we know, and then they pass this service on to people we don't know, and so I've also rewritten the resumes of people I do not know. And also, I've been a hiring manager for some years in the past, so I also know what it's like to try to find the resume of a person who will fit the job that I'm trying to fill. Okay. So let's just get straight into this. I've got a job right now. 
Why would I want to update my resume? Well, realistically speaking, and as you mentioned in the intro, you just never know when you're going to have to look for a new job. So updating your resume regularly and often means that you're ready to find a new job either when you lose the job that you currently have or when you just decide you're not satisfied with it anymore. So updating your resume is going to prevent you from a costly delay if you lose your job, and it'll also prevent you from using the my resume isn't current excuse when you're ready to apply for a better job. Yes, I hear that excuse all the time. seen that too many times. Right. Okay, so updating your resume while you're still employed is a good idea, but how often? Do I do it weekly or monthly or what? I'd say often enough to keep it current, and a couple of reasons for this. The first is that it's a whole lot easier to add a little bit of information every couple of months when it's fresh in your mind than waiting until you're unemployed or desperate to find a new job and having to add three to five years worth of job history. So updating your resume, does that mean you're actively looking for a new job just because I'm doing this doesn't mean I'm looking? Well, no, but it does mean that I'm prepared to look if I decide conditions warrant a new job hunt. So this is going to help me avoid a desperate job search and it's going to put me on the offensive instead of the defensive. So given all of that, my rule of thumb is that I update my resume at least as often with the disclaimer. I actually update my resume once a month, at least once a month, but I'm kind of psychotic about this. But I would say that you should update your resume whenever first you achieve a major accomplishment at work or second you acquire a significant new skill that makes you a more marketable person in your field. Third is if your title or job duties substantially change. Or the person you're working for. True. Fourth is the stability at my job significantly lessens, at least in my perception. This could be announcement of a merger, impending layoffs, low quarterly earnings, fourth quarter in a row. You hear about some kind of legislation that will negatively impact your industry or your company's ability to compete in the market. Any of those reasons can send you a message that your job may be in danger. And fifth, and this is one that speaks to the point that you just mentioned, when I discover I'm no longer really happy about where I work for whatever reason, and this might be because I have a new boss, or it might be that I've come to the realization that I'm at the end of my career path with this company, I've hit the glass ceiling. It could be that I'm not earning enough money, or that I'd like to be doing a different type of work, or maybe I'm ready to become a manager, but there aren't any management opportunities for me in my company. It could be that I discovered that others in equivalent positions, either inside my company or outside it, are earning significantly more than I do. Or maybe I just heard about my dream job and I'm ready for a change. So you don't have to wait for that dreaded horror to build up in the pit of your stomach before you decide (laughs) to rewrite your resume? No, in fact, I really recommend you do it before that happens. But if that does happen, you sure as hell better be updating your resume. All right, so you convinced me. I've got to update my resume. I put all the most recent stuff on there. I spell check it. I make sure it's the right length, that type of thing. How much is there to this? Well, if you want to be the person who gets the job, if you want to be the one to find the dream job, then there is a little bit more to this. And first of all, you're selling yourself as a solution to a company. The employer has a problem, and they want to solve it by hiring somebody new to not just fill a position, but to actually solve a problem. And so... Given that, write with your audience in mind. You want to tell the prospective employer what you can do for them. And yes, it is absolutely all about them because they want to hire somebody to solve their problem. So this is about playing up your skills, casting them in a light that will appeal to employers who want to fix something in their current situation. And my advice here is applicable to every position at every level, and it's the art of selling yourself and your skills. So to that end, the way that your resume should be written 
is first of all, use action verbs. And some examples of this are increased sales, reduced expenses, eliminated waste, implemented new procedures, improved morale, etc. What was the result of your work? And related to this is using results-oriented language. You don't want to just list a bunch of tasks that you're capable of performing. You actually want to explain what the end result, what the what the good is to the company as a result of you performing those tasks. That's what results-oriented language is. And finally, you want to maintain a positive tone at all times. You want to take the attitude of it's all good. And quite frankly, if it wasn't good, at least present it in the most favorable light possible. And if you cannot explain something positively, it just simply does not belong in your resume. So now you've written your resume the way that employers want to see it. You're selling yourself. The next thing that you need to do is make sure that you've included all the pertinent buzzwords, acronyms, and geek talk from your field. But be sure if you include it on your resume that you know what it means or what it stands for and that you can speak intelligently about it. So don't put Unix on your resume if you're not quite sure what the acronym means. That's right. If you don't know what Unix is, don't put it on there and then ask the person interviewing you what it means. I really thought it was an acronym, man. (laughs) The next thing that you want to do is have a few people review your resume, if at all possible. And one of these people should be someone in your field because they're going to perform the acronym and buzzword check. And the at least one other person who should edit it is someone who can look at grammar, spelling, formatting, presentation, that kind of thing. So now we know how it should be written. We know that you need to include the information that's relevant to your field and that someone should review it. But there's one other thing that you often have to do in your resume, and that's sort of address problems in your work history. So the first one of these is you might have a job that was either irrelevant or problematic, and so you'd rather not put it on your resume. And I'm going to tell you, if it's short and you can explain that gap in your work history, leave it off. Just leave it off. A lot of times, especially after the dot-com bubble burst, employers or recruiters will just assume that you had been laid off and that you were unemployed during that period. However, because they might ask, you need to have a rehearsed response that explains it, something very brief. If you have a problematic job, irrelevant job, that the gap is too long and you can't leave it off, you're better off putting it on your resume, but again, having a rehearsed response to explain the situation. So I'll give you an example of this. I had a position, my first management position, that I worked in for six weeks, and it's very difficult for me to explain why I left in a positive light. I squirm just to think about the job. So initially, when I was looking for a new job and when I held the first job after I left that one, I did leave this position on my resume. And when I was asked, I simply stated that I left for a better opportunity, and that's technically true. But it is difficult to explain how the next position that I went to was a better opportunity when it wasn't a management job. Later on, after I'd worked in the next position for a while, I ended up removing the six-week-long management position from my resume altogether. It's a short gap. I can explain it. At this point, nobody even asks. It's so far in the past. So that's how you address either irrelevant or problematic experience in your work history. And there's one other issue that you may have to address, and that's if you work for a company that used non-standard job titles... It is acceptable to modify your job title to something that is more standard within your industry or your field. So the example that I have in my past is that I worked in the position of operational trainer for a number of years, but my duties actually included technical writing, tech support, tech training, and instructional design. So when I put that position on my resume, I modify the title to be those four things instead of operational trainer, which is meaningless to most people within my field. Wow, that sounds like a lot of really good advice. Can you tell us some of the stuff that we should avoid doing? 
Yeah, there are a few things that you should never do. And the first one is absolutely do not lie about your educational background, your certifications, or any employment history that can be verified or rather verified to be untrue. So this is going to include dates of unemployment. You can fudge a little. You can use years and say, I worked at a position from 2001 to 2002 instead of listing the actual months, which might have been December 2001 to January 2002. But you absolutely cannot claim that you worked for an employer during a period when you didn't because this can be verified. And the second one is, if you worked for a company that went under, do not lie about the role that you had at the company. I know it seems like you'll get away with it, but there are services now, such as LinkedIn.com, where your actual role at that company can be verified. So if you were a senior QA person, you're probably not long-term going to get away with saying you were the director of operations. And finally, don't make excuses on your resume. Don't say things like, I would have finished school, but I had a death in the family. Just put the years that you went to school, put the degree that you were seeking, rather, the coursework, but you don't need to mention that one, you didn't finish it, and two, that you had a death in the family. That's just not relevant to your position. Another one is, I didn't have a job from June of whatever to February of 2000 because I was having health problems. Again, an employer does not want to hire somebody who has problems, so you need to reflect yourself in a positive light. Don't mention the problems. Yeah, I had to take my mental health benefits <laughs> during that period. It's unfortunate if that happened, but really, your prospective employer doesn't need to know because what they will think is, oh my God, this person is going to be a health problem, a mental health problem, a whatever, and they won't hire you. So don't include it. And another example that I see fairly often is, I never certified because my employer wouldn't pay for it, or I never certified because of blah. It doesn't matter. Put on there the dates that you were going through the coursework and taking the tests or at least reading about the certification. You don't need to put that you didn't even receive the certification. It is not dishonest to not put on there that you didn't receive the certification. Yes, the employer might assume that you have the certification, or they may just ask you in which case. Be honest and tell them, no, I didn't get it. I'm still working on that. All righty then. So what about all of the auxiliary stuff that we want to stuff onto a resume, like references or salary requirements or where in the United States I feel like working this month? What about all that stuff? Well, first of all, not everything goes on your resume. So you want to convey information where it'll do the most good for you. And the way that I look at this is there are three parts. First of all, there's the resume, and this is where you provide all the facts, you sell yourself as a solution. The cover letter is where you really sell yourself. You summarize the high points of what you can do, but you're going to use general terms here because the specifics, of course, are all living on your resume now. You're also going to customize your message for a specific employer or job. One caveat, you may, in fact, write more than one resume, customize it to different types of positions that you're seeking, but we're going to assume here that you've got one resume, multiple cover letters, cover letters are customized. And finally, the third piece of your interaction with somebody who's looking to hire is either the telephone or the face-to-face interview. And here you're going to do more selling, but you're also addressing items that are difficult to convey in writing and that might raise questions or get your resume tossed aside if they appeared on it. So, for example, the gap in the work history that we talked about. If you put a gap on it, this is where you would explain that gap, not in your resume, not in your cover letter. So those are the three pieces, but then there's extra information that you asked about. Where do I put that? Well, the extra information that you include, and this could be the make or break factors such as pay or any other item, these are going to go in one of those three places. So minimum salary requirements, I'm going to suggest, and some people will disagree with me, that this goes on your resume and or your cover letter. I put it in both. 
And the reason is I have had employers contact me when I haven't included this information, usually at the request of a recruiter. So I don't include the information. The hiring manager calls me. We have a great discussion. They want the goddess of system administration, training, instructional design, tech writing, you name it. I'm that person, but they want to pay me 20000 less than I'm making. And I don't find that out until an hour and a half, two hours into the conversation. They just wasted my time and I wasted theirs. So I always include minimum salary requirements on either the resume or the cover letter. Location limitations or whether or not you're willing to relocate, I always include that on the cover letter. And then the terms of employment that you're looking for, full-time, part-time, contract, whatever, I put these on the cover letter. If you have a complete list of your tech skills or software you've used, let's say you have done it all. So you have a three-page list of, of software that you've used, of protocols that you know how to write, of scripting languages you can write. Put that in a separate page if it's too long for your resume. And by too long, I mean if it's taken up even half a page, out it goes. Put it somewhere else. And then finally, list of references. First of all, I'll say only provide these on request but then provide them in a separate document or just send them back in an email response. It doesn't have to be something formal. Okay, so we've got a resume. Let's talk about references for a second here. How do you pick who you select as your reference? I mean, let's say I just plain don't get along with my current boss and don't want to put him on there. Can I get away with that? Well, yeah, actually you can. And this is a misconception that a lot of people have. They think that they have to put their current boss on there and... In fact, you don't even have to put anybody from your current company if you feel that that will jeopardize your job. And I have yet to come across a hiring manager or a recruiter who will not take that as an acceptable response. So if I don't want my boss to find out and I don't trust my coworkers and whatever, then I need not list them. Okay, that said, if you can put your manager on there, if you can put at least somebody in your company, that is always more compelling because employers want to know where you're at right now. They want to know what kind of employee you are. They want to know what you're like to work with or work for. And so to the extent possible, you want to put somebody current on there, but it need not be your boss. Another thing that you need to do is when you're thinking of who you should list as references, I'll give you the rule of thumb of at least one manager, current or former. And then your other references can be either coworkers, internal or external customers, or your employees. But be sure whoever you get that they can speak intelligently, convincingly, and in enough detail about what you do to adequately convey to the person asking what kind of person you are to work for. So not the receptionist. Not the receptionist. Unless she's also the system administrator at your company and she really knows about the technical stuff. She's probably not a good person to list. In my experience, two good colleague references far outweigh one lukewarm manager reference. And then the other thing that I'll say about this is make sure you know exactly what a reference is going to say about you. And this may mean that you need to have a conversation with them every time before somebody calls them to check your references. So give them a call, make sure they still remember what you did, make sure they still speak favorably about you, that kind of thing. And this is really, really important because remember that reference checking is often the very last step an employer takes before they make an offer. And this can certainly be the make or break in the situation, the thing that gets you hired or doesn't get you hired. Okay, that's a lot of information. Um, can we have a wrap-up? What's the most important points here? If we do nothing else, what should we do with our resume? Well, I'll give you five, and some of these are not things that I've mentioned, but they're important, so I'll include them in my list of five. So first of all, update your resume often. Remember that it's a lot easier if you update it a little bit at a time, and it's also far less of a chore. 
The second one is when you update your local electronic version of your resume, update the job boards at the same time. This, of course, assumes that you don't mind being noticed and being contacted. And the reason I say this is because a lot of the job boards, such as monster.com, when you tweak your resume, you even add a space, add a skill, whatever, change the duration that you have possessed a skill, whatever, this is going to move you up into the new or updated resumes which means people who go out there and search all of the new resumes, they're going to see yours. Even if they just looked at it yesterday before you updated it, it's going to push it back up and be noticed. So that's really important to update it as you update your local electronic version. The third one is just to remember to sell yourself as a solution rather than merely as someone who's performed a series of tasks over a period of time. Employers want solutions, and if you do nothing more than present yourself as an active problem solver or an active solution, this will help you stand out above the other candidates. Fourth is know your references, know what they'll say about you, and be sure you have permission to provide their contact information every single time you want to use them as a reference. And finally, be as honest on your resume as your future employers will be with you in the interview. Okay. That's a lot of good information. Um, Sounds like it's time to go update my resume. Greetings. Welcome to the Virtual Command Environment. I'm the Artificial Intelligence who will be assisting you. Hi there, and welcome to the Chatter Department. If you don't want to listen to chatter, then turn your thing off or skip to the next track or whatever. We'll keep it quick. We will. So the brains are here. Brains. Well, actually, yes. the brains are here and the brains are there. And the brains are everywhere. The brains are all over our house. Yeah. Our two-year-old has decided that they're her favorite toy, all 500 of them, and they're everywhere. But we did manage to send a few off. We did. We sent one to Steve and another one to Scott. Mm-hmm. We got some feedback about the show. We also sent one to Pragmatically Weird. Mm-hmm. And we sent a collection of them off to Derek and Swoopy and Susan over at Skepticality. Get well soon, Derek. We sent another one off to Laura. That's right. Local fan. That's right. And if you want one, hop on to our forum and say something interesting because we're giving them away at pretty much any opportunity at this point. And just a note on the forum. Well, two notes. First of all, our bad. We had no contact information on our website. Don't. <laughs> it's been corrected. Our email addresses are out there now. For the time being, email addresses for Rob and I. If you have a comment for Jim, send it to us. We'll forward it to him. Also, on the forums, that is the Intellectual Icebergs forum, but it's doing double duty. Yeah, we we kind of borrowed it. We have this odd addiction to superhero massively multiplayer online role-playing games, and we started a guild, or whatever you want to call it. It's a supervillain group in City of Villains, which was released recently, and we're allowing our supervillain group to borrow part of the forum to just do its miscellaneous chatter. Okay, Evil Genius is for a better tomorrow. They are not some evil thing taking over the world, and if they are, they're trying to hide in plain sight. That's right. If, if you happen to be a gamer, if you happen to be on City of Villains, then by all means, come out to the Infinity server and join our villain group. That's we, right. We have base. That's right. We have base. <laughs> all your base are belong to us. But we wanted you to know that, yeah, that evil geniuses for a better tomorrow bit, that's nothing to do with Entice. You're welcome to look at it. It's still pretty clean as forums go. Yeah. What else have we got? Oh, we're trying to get the shows out every three weeks now, as we mentioned. We tried to do that this time. We did. But it turned out 
the cognitive dissonance, we had to re-record it. I think we're going to do our fourth recording tomorrow. We've almost got it right, so we'll be releasing that really soon. But we do have a new plan to keep on track. That's right. But you can help. That's right. If you come up with an interesting idea that you want to understand better, then please drop it on the forum. We've been doing quite a bit of research, and thanks to everyone who's already posted ideas, we're currently looking into a number of leads for good interviews. You can also send us experts. We did have an individual send us his brother's name, so we may be doing an interview with him in the future. Mm -hmm. Also, I am looking for feedback on dating tips for geeks. I have a thread out there on the forum, so go take a look, and if you have some feedback, please send it to me. Start a new topic if you wish. That's right. In our attempts to give better and more interesting dating tips to geeks, it would be useful if people actually gave real-world advice. I mean, I personally have a significant body of experience in that dating is a geek thing, but I am only one person. I have experience as well. I also have my biases. So help us make it a little less biased, a little more objective. Right. Next show should come out December 1st. That's right. And we're going to try and do a segment on partyology. We've been throwing parties for a number of years. Figure we can give our listeners all the tips they need to throw a successful holiday season party. And there will be some other topic as yet to be determined. And one other bit of exciting news. We just attended our second promotional event. We went to an RMIUG meeting on podcasting. RMIUG is Rocky Mountain Internet Users Group. And that was fun. It was a lot of fun. Gave out some brains. Gave Mm. out some discs. And if any of you are out there listening from RMIUG, thank you. Thank you. Happy to have you here. And I think that's it. That's all the news. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to hear from you next time. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Raplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley, Podcast Pickle, and Digital Podcasting. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is Sia by Paso Bordo. The music for the interlude is Invisible Wings by Jamie Sieber, an artist you can find on Magnatune. The music for the second segment is Entry by Cargo Cult. The makers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you that you can pick your friends and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Onk Infinity production. Unstable.